When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mystery and thriller readers, this one is for you. We're giving away the 10 best mysteries and thrillers of the year so far to one lucky Book Riot reader or podcast listener. The prize pack includes Miracle Creek by Angie Kim, The Lost Man by Jane Harper, and American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson, plus more. Just go to bookriot.com slash best mysteries to enter to win, and don't forget to leave your lights on. And I would just like to say uh, Miracle Creek is awesome, and American Spy is on my TBR for this weekend. So definitely go enter. That is bookriot.com slash best mysteries. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Ukara. We're recording on Friday, August 30th. Hello, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you? I have been battling a virus for the past five days, but I feel cautiously optimistic that I'm on the upswing. And I had, um, actually, I was about to say I had a lot of time to read, but that's not true. I mainly have been sleeping. <laughs> that seems fair. Since you have a virus, you should be sleeping. Yeah. I did finish the, uh, I think, I forget what network it was on, but the series Gravity Falls. You know, that cartoon series about, anyway, it's like 40 episodes. And I finally knocked out the last few. So that's fun. <laughs> that's a, a useful thing to do while you're sick. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, we have follow-up, which uh, both pieces of which I am very excited about. Number one, of course, is thank you, everyone, for your feedback from last episode. Yes. We had such a great response. Yes. Yeah, I feel like we had a good mix of people being like, we like new books, we like themed things, which, you know, we're not intending on making that many episodes, like all one or the other. But it was it's really great to sort of like hear what people are liking about it. And Kim, do you have any other notes, thoughts on that? Yeah, I was just really glad that it seemed like it was pretty split down the middle, uh, which means that splitting each podcast in half is good because people like both of the segments. Uh, And I also thought it was funny. So as we were chatting about what feedback we were getting, you were like, oh, I feel like it's more new books because I like new books. And I was like, oh, I feel like it's more themes because that's what I like. So I I just thought it was funny that like you and I have different sections of the podcast that we like putting together each too. So I thought that was funny. This is extremely true. Um, The other bit of follow-up is, so I was listening to the audiobook of Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand, I believe is the author. And uh, you had kind of expressed some I feel like it was reservation or something as you said you listened to it and I didn't know quite what you were meaning because I was at the very beginning when I was like, the plane just crashed and there's sharks. I literally thought that was going to be the whole book. I thought it was going to be about them being in a plane crash and there were sharks and it got so much worse. Oh my gosh. I actually, to a point where I was like, I don't know how I feel about this book because it goes so much into the like horrible, intense torture suffered by these POWs. And I get that that story needs to be told in some way, but I felt like maybe she might go too into it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a it is a tough book, I think, to read or listen to like as, as they're 
POW and experience goes on after they're rescued. It's it's rough for sure. Goodness gracious. And it was like 15 hours of that. Oh, so much. Not not just sharks. Just anyone who wants to like possibly read or listen to it, just know that there's so much after that. There is a lot after the sharks. Yeah, that's funny. I don't think I have any other follow-up, so I will uh, dive into our first sponsor. Uh, so our first sponsor is What They Meant for Evil by Rebecca Deng, which was published by Faith Words, an imprint of Hachette Book Group. Uh, so many stories have been told about the famous Lost Boys, but now for the first time, a lost girl shares her hauntingly beautiful and inspiring story. One of the first unaccompanied refugee children to enter the United States in 2000, after South Sudan's second civil war took the lives of most of her family, Rebecca's story begins at the age of four when her village was attacked. Fleeing from gunfire and dodging life-threatening predators and soldiers alike, her story is a captivating portrait of a child hurled into wartime, and how she came to America and found a new life. Uh, so this memoir uh, is about a woman who survived the second Sudanese civil war, which was a brutal and ruthless war that lasted 22 years. That involved child soldiers, slavery, mass killings, and the death of 2 million people, which is just very intense and scary. Uh, so this is an account of the traumatic events that occurred during uh, Rebecca Dang's childhood and her adolescence, beginning with an attack on her village during her youth. Um, this is one of the first stories that really tells the story of the lost girls, so young women who were affected by uh, this incident or this um this war. So as one of only 89 female refugees admitted to the United States, Rebecca and her story uh, deserve a lot of widespread recognition. So that is uh, What They Meant for Evil by Rebecca Dang. All right. And so with that, we will um, head into what is our new first segment, which is nonfiction in the news. So this is just news stories in the nonfiction world that might be interesting uh, that we are kind of excited or curious about. So um, Alice, you have one that uh, is fun, I think, to go with first. It is fun. So there is an anthology series um, kind of known as the Bad Girls Anthology Series. You've, you've, uh, if you've kind of looked through popular new books at the bookstore or sort of like books recommended for young girls or just like women in general, you've probably seen it. It's got some really um, great illustrations and focuses, um, highlights sort of various women throughout history. So the first one is, appropriately enough, called Bad Girls Throughout History. It's by Anne Shen, and it depicts these influential women throughout history. So that is being adapted um, into an anthology series, which is really, really exciting. Each episode is going to feature a different influential woman, including Ada Lovelace, who uh, is a frequent guest on this podcast in mentioned (laughs) form, uh, Rosa Parks, Mata Hari, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is just um, so hot right now. Everyone's talking about (laughs) (laughs) So each episode is going to be written, directed, and starring a different female team, which I just like, that's going to be so exciting. And I'm glad that we're getting more sort of female-focused series uh, throughout, I think, like this past decade. We've had like a good number of them. So this is going to be, and of course, focusing on history itself is going to be very exciting for uh, me personally. So (laughs) yeah, it's liked about it. Kim, you had uh, a fun hope for this series. Yeah. When I heard that it was an anthology series and I read the part where it was going to be like different groups of female creators doing each episode, I was like, boy, it would be fun if this was like drunk history. Um, I find drunk history just very, very funny. Um, and I know, th- I don't know. I just thought it would be fun if it was it was done in that way where it's sort of more, I guess, lighthearted and goofy. Um, that just seemed funny to me, but we'll see what it actually turns out to be. That might just be my my secret hope. I mean, I 100% agree that, and also Drunk History, as great a show as it is, it's usually very male-focused. So yeah, um, true. Yeah, if we could have like more of a slant towards that uh, for women, that would be great. 
That would be great. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, So my news story is about an adaptation that I am extremely excited about. Um, So Just Mercy is a book by Michael, or excuse me, um, by Brian Stevenson, uh, and it is being turned into a movie. Uh, And the movie is going to be out in January 2020, I believe. Um, And so in the last couple of weeks, they released some of the very first um, images from the movie. So it stars Michael B. Jordan, Jamie Foxx, Brie Larson, and O'Shea Jackson Jr. Uh, And the article says it'll premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival ahead of its January 2020 theatrical release. So the movie is based on a memoir by Brian Stevenson about his work with the Equal Justice Initiative um, specifically. And it follows, uh, it tells kind of his whole story, but it follows really specifically the exoneration of a guy named Walker, Walter McMillan, who was sentenced to death row in 1987 for murder that he didn't commit. This is an article from Shadow and Act that we'll listen to or will link to. Um, and so the movie is going to kind of follow that story, but also be um, a story about kind of more of Brian Stevenson's life. Um, And so when they announced this adaptation, like, I don't even know, a long time ago, I was psyched about it from the very beginning because I love Michael B. Jordan and I love this book. And I think it's just going to be, I'm really excited about it as an adaptation. Um, And the images look, they look really great. Um, Jamie Foxx looks more convincing than I kind of expected that he might in the role that he's having. So um, yeah, so we'll link to this article in the show notes, but, um, yeah, images from Just Mercy, which is going to be out in a few months now, which is exciting. Well, and when, when I saw this news article and then I looked up the book, Just Mercy, it had such stellar reviews. And I was like, I know I've seen this again, like floating around like the library and bookstores. Um, and I had no idea what it was about, but like the reviews were so good. I was like, I feel like I have to read it just because of that. It is a great, great book. Um, definitely one of my favorites the year that I read it. It was it was so good. So definitely pick it up and read it ahead of the movie. Awesome. And as always, um, our uh, news in the, what is it? Nonfiction news? Nonfiction in the news. We're still working on new segment titles. <laughs> I feel like that one sort of says it all, though. Nonfiction in the news uh, articles will all be linked in our show notes. So um, if you want to read those specifically, then you can just check them out there. And with that, our second sponsor for the episode is Recommended from Book Riot. Tune into the newest season of Recommended, where we're talking to interesting people about their favorite books in season five. We'll hear from authors Nicole Dennis-Ben and Tamsin Muir, hashtag disabled and cute creator Kia Brown, whose book we talked about on this podcast, cartoonist Jen Wang, and many more about the books that have shaped their reading lives. Go to bookriot.com slash recommended to listen. Excellent. I do love recommended. It's really fun. All right. So now we are diving into new books where we talk about books that are out recently, coming out soon, that we have read or previewed or are excited about or, yeah, don't know anything about but are enthused. Uh, So I will let you go first, Alice. Sure. My first pick for new books this week is Midwestern Strange, Hunting Monsters, Martians, and the Weird in Flyover Country by B.J. Hollers. This is out September 1st from University of Nebraska Press. We, of course, love a good University Press book. And I was very excited about this one because I have long been interested in cryptozoology. And I try to drag it into this podcast whenever I can, as much as I can with the whole nonfiction aspect. So... The author, B.J. Hollers, he's just this like happy nerd professor who at the very beginning of the book talks about how when he was eight, he founded the Indiana Monster Research Center in a closet in his parents' house where he, you know, tried to like research 
things about monsters in Indiana, which you would think there would be none, but his book is out to prove you wrong. So he splits it into monsters, Martians, and the weird. And he has like different case files for each section. So in the first, in monsters, he talks about like the Beast of Bray Road, which is this like werewolf-like creature that people have seen. And he like goes out there and like checks out the road. And he's like, it was less spooky than I was hoping it would be, but that's fine. And uh, he talks about this giant turtle named Oscar in Indiana that people in i think it was the 40s said that they saw and that it had the shell the size of um a pool table which if you of course have watched the documentary series titanoboa about the largest snake in recorded history then you know that there were turtles of that size during titanoboa's lifespan so i'm not i just have to interrupt and say that sounds horrifying oh yeah yeah but also titanoboa is such a good documentary um but yeah, no, so they had all these giant like reptiles and, and snakes and whatnot. And um, so I'm not, I don't feel like Oscar existing is totally outside the realm of possibility, especially because they found that um, giant fish that they thought was extinct. Do you know what I'm talking about? Someone right now is probably shouting the name of it at their phone. No, I do not. I do not know. Sorry. There was this prehistoric fish that everyone thought was extinct like 65 million years ago. And then this woman scientist found one. Like, well, she identified one off the coast of some country that I don't want to name because I'll get it wrong. But anyway, I'm saying that these things are still being found and it's awesome. So he also does that. There, are, He talks about flying saucers in Wisconsin, a seven-foot lizard ox, and space pancakes, which is a story from Wisconsin where this farmer says that a flying saucer landed in his backyard and they gave him pancakes. <clears throat> and I know that you're like, well, that sounds ridiculous because it does. But he gave the pancakes to like, I think it was it was a research facility to investigate them. They said they were made of earth materials, but then I don't even know where to go from there. It's really interesting and funny. So if you check this out, he, he does research. He talks to cryptozoologists. He goes out and interviews people in the Midwest about their weird things that they say have happened to them. He kind of tries to approach it in like a scholarly way. Like he's like, here's like one possibility, but here's like the probable you know, non-cool explanation, but it's likely. Anyway, I was excited because it talks about cryptozoological things from the Midwest. I obviously live in the Midwest. And I was just psyched that this book was written. So again, that is Midwestern Strange, Hunting Monsters, Martians, and the Weird in Flyover Country by BJ Hollers. That is a very Alice. Uh, I It always makes me laugh when you talk about how much you love books about like weird animals and like cryptozoology and everything. Like, I don't know, just it's just a funny uh, uh, area of nonfiction that you adore, which makes me laugh. So excellent. Pick. It's the best. <laughs> All right. Um, my first pick is called The Optimist's Telescope, Thinking Ahead in a Reckless Age by Bina Venkataram. Um, this one came out August 27th from Riverhead Books. Uh, and so this is a book about uh, decision making and why it can often be very hard to make the decision that is best in the long term uh, because the short term is more appealing or um, more easy to understand. So if you have ever wondered why making a decision that will benefit you most in the long term is hard, then this is a book definitely for you. So um, the author is a writer and a former uh, Obama administration official 
Uh, and she was an advisor on climate change. And so she went to communities and tried to get them to think about climate change and make long-term decisions that would be- help their communities through the challenges that climate change is bringing. Um, but it turns out like cities and governments and people and everyone is really hard at thinking long-term like that and making short-term, taking on short-term pain in order to make uh, long-term good decisions. So uh, in the book, she explores the biology, psychology, and economics of making better decisions over time, uh, and then looks at practices that we can adopt and ourselves and kind of as a group to try and deal with this. So um, the book looks at like the consequence, um, some consequences of short-term thinking versus uh, that has left to kind of bad long-term consequences. So like superbugs are a bad long-term consequence of over, short-term overuse of antibiotics. Um, failed companies are often uh, one of the reasons that they fail is because they don't make um, strategic investments to continue in the long-term. They make short-term gain uh, decisions. Uh, natural disasters can often be made worse because people have not made the long-term decisions to invest in infrastructure. And so then when one happens, they're screwed. Um, so the point of the book, though, is to dispel the myth that human nature is impossibly reckless and instead look at the ways that we can kind of make better decisions uh, through thinking about the long term. So um, it sounds maybe a little heavy, but I've actually found it very enjoyable to read. Um, she's got a good writing, like a um, in, engaging writing style. And the examples are, you know, they're a little depressing because there, <laughs> there are a lot of bad things that happen. Um, but I think I'm excited to get to the part talking about like how we can actually work against some of these like long-term decisions. Um, and part of the reason I was excited about this one is because one of the ways that I try to make better decisions is by thinking about what will benefit future Kim. Um, so sometimes I will do stuff in the present that I'm not really excited about because I know that they will make future Kim's life easier. Um, but I know that I can always use more help trying to like live that way. So uh, The Optimist's Telescope, Thinking Ahead in a Reckless Age by Bina Venkataran. That is excellent. Do you ever yell at past Kim for decisions she has made? Oh my gosh, all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I've, I've definitely referred to past Alice, which is, you know, capital P, capital A, all one word. Just like making just ridiculous decisions. Do they talk about thus far plastic and how people were like, wow, plastic and didn't think about how it might not be great to produce so much of this thing that doesn't really biodegrade? That has not come up in the part that I have read so far, but uh, it definitely, it seems like a good example that might, but I have not read that part yet. Interesting. It also reminded me of the marshmallow test. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, with the, yeah, mm-hmm. in like a very small microcosm sort of way. Yes. Yeah. Taking a major turn, I suppose, it, my next pick is Savage Appetites for True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession by Rachel Monroe. It's out August 20th from Scribner. I really, really like this book. So she breaks her story into four parts, depending on uh, who you can identify with in a murder. So there's the detective, the victim, the defender, and the killer. So for the um, detective, she talks about Frances Glessner Lee and her nutshell studies, which if you don't know, so Frances Glessner Lee was the daughter of this very wealthy man in Chicago. You can still tour their house. It's really cool. And she, as she got older, was more and more interested in homicide and forensics and true crime. And she devoted a lot of her money to the study of forensics because she thought it was going to save many innocent people from going to prison, which uh, it sort of turned out to be the reverse. But as forensics have gotten more and more like kind of discredited, you know, like blood spatter analysis and all this kind of stuff is people are like, it's not really a thing. Um, But within this, she created these tiny 
uh, dioramas of murder cases where she would like basically go into like miniature mania and just like get every single tiny detail. And then she would have detectives come in and try to solve the murders using like small details from the crime scene so that they could learn to be more attentive to like that kind of thing. And you can still see them. They were recently at the Renwick gallery at the Smithsonian because they're part of this, like they, they said that they were this artistic thing, which apparently she was very pro facts and anti, like she didn't consider herself an artist. So Monroe is kind of like, I don't know if she would have liked that, but that's fine. (laughs) So it also talks about um, Sharon Tate and her family. And that part I thought was really great because this was under the victim section and it was talking sort of glancingly talks about the, the, Tate LaBianca murders by the Manson family and much more focuses on Sharon Tate's family and what they went through afterwards and like continued to go through for like decades and like had these people who kept like they were like these obsessive like stalker people who wanted to just like insert themselves into the case there was this one woman who said that she was Sharon Tate's baby who had like somehow escaped and it's just like so harmful and stuff that you just don't hear about when you hear about the this like the Manson family crimes. So that was really uh interesting talking about like the beginning of victims rights advocacy because Sharon Tate's mother was a big part in that and also like the complicated legacy that came from victims rights advocacy because they used this kind of as a reason to do like three strikes laws and or that kind of thing. And so that's led to like unprecedented imprisonment. So anyway, there's like she goes into so much and I don't want to like take up the whole podcast talking about this book, but <laughs> It's so good. Um, The other two things are like this landscape architect who fell in love with a convicted murderer and a Columbine fangirl who planned her own mass shooting. So those are like the other two parts. She talks about this thin line that there is between honoring a tragedy and feeding off it when she was like in Colorado and she thought about going by Columbine just to see it. And she ended up stopping herself because she was like, that crosses the line. And I was like, oh, so that's like, I'm so impressed by you because that line is like, if you're into true crime at all, that line is always there and you don't want to become this like, like voyeur, hanger on, whatever, because it's gross. Um, anyway, so yeah, so she gives this really thoughtful look into true crime. It's a great book. Again, it is Savage Appetites for True Stories of Women, Crime and Obsession by Rachel Monroe. Excellent. I'm really glad you talked about that one because, yeah, I think, you know, you and I joke and talk about how much we like true crime, but like there is sort of an ethical like dilemma about it and how much is are you like being a voyeur into someone else's tragedy and how much of it is like are things that you can kind of learn. Um, and so I think that this sounds like a really interesting kind of dig at some of that. Um, very cool. Um, so my final pick for new books is also actually, I think, a university press book. It's from the Chicago Review Press, and it's called Scan Artist, How Evelyn Wood Convinced the World That Speed Reading Worked by Marsha Biederman. And so the, the very first like poll quote about the book is that the best known educator of the 20th century was a scammer in Kashmir, uh, which that made me laugh. <laughs> So Evelyn Wood was this woman who um, she had like no classroom experience. She had no degrees in reading instruction and her background involved collaborating with the Third Reich. But she became this very well-known speed reading teacher. And she had a ton of followers and people who were like learning her methods to speed read, which she claimed like you could read um, one of the kids in a demonstration who, when she kind of first launched it, said that he read several thousand books in a year. Um, one of her followers was a senator who would say that he could finish a book on his lunch break. And these people claim that they could read so much with no loss of comprehension at all. Um, but actually, like, 
that all turned out to be not true. Uh, and as you would expect, right? Um, and so then like tests and science looking at her method and her followers afterwards showed that they basically were just skimming and that people didn't actually get any of the content that they were saying. But it was this very elaborate, um, long-term con essentially uh, convincing people that she had this amazing method for speed reading um, and going through with that. So it's it's kind of fun to read just like in the context of conversations people have about how can you read so fast and all of those kinds of things. Um, I will say that the book is a bit slow in the beginning. Um, the part where she and her husband and her family are over in Germany and sort of having this sort of collaborative connected relationship with the Third Reich and the Nazis. Um, I actually did not find that part super interesting. Like, I really just wanted to get into the scam stuff because that's what I was reading this for. Um, but uh, the, uh, after I got kind of through that part, it's been pretty delightful so far. So um, this is a book that fits. I really love stories that are high drama but low stakes. Uh, and this feels like right exactly in that place because, like, it's very dramatic that she, like, tells you people can read thousands of books in a year. Um, but, like, the stakes of this scam are actually relatively low. Like, no one's dying or anything. So um, it's just a like a fun, weird little like historical crime thing. Uh, so that is Scan Artist, How Evelyn Wood Convinced the World That Speed Reading Worked by Marsha Biederman. That is uh, hilarious. And yeah. I, I just I just really enjoy high drama, low stakes. Yeah. And that's such a good encapsulation of like a specific type of book that feels like really nice to read. But like, yeah, again, you're not just like, oh, no, everything's good. It's sort of the opposite of your optimist telescope. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when I was in when I worked in newspapers, those were my favorite kinds of stories to do because like they're fun to write, they're fun to talk to people about, and like obviously the stakes are high for the people who are involved, but like in the grand scheme of things, the stakes are low, and that makes them kind of fun to like get into and pay attention to. So yeah, that's awesome. Oh, also, I looked up that fish, and it's a coelacanth. <laughs> And it was just rediscovered after being thought to be extinct for 65 million years. It was rediscovered in 1938. Whoa. That is all. Whoa. Mic drop. All right. Uh, so uh, Scan Artist is actually kind of a good book to transition unintentionally into our theme segment for the week, which is about back to school or books about education, since uh, this will be coming out on September 3rd, which in Minnesota is the first day of school for a lot of kids. But I know other states start sooner than we do. Um, but yeah, we thought it'd be fun to talk about books related to, to school. So um, the first pick is mine, uh, and it is a book that I have talked about on the podcast before, but it was really good, and so I want to talk about it again. Uh, so it is called The Class, A Life-Changing Teacher, His World-Changing Kids, and the Most Inventive Classroom in America by Heather Wantisario, uh, which uh, I mentioned last September as a new book, um, but I have read it, and it is great. So uh, the book, uh, the author spends a year in the classroom of a visionary high school science teacher in Connecticut. Um, this guy left his job as a corporate scientist to become a teacher. Uh, and he teaches at this prestigious yet diverse high school in Connecticut. Um, and his classroom is essentially like a research lab. So the students, there's no defined curriculum, there's no tests, there's no textbooks, there's no lectures. Um, students apply to be in the class and then they spend the year working on science fair projects so that they compete on the science fair circuit, uh, which is actually a thing. It is a huge big deal, the competitive science fair circuit. So um, the the book just follows a year in this classroom. So it tells the story of the kids. It tells the story of the teacher. It talks about the administration and the parents and kind of all of the things connected to this science fair competition around this classroom. So the kids in the book are really smart and driven and interesting. They're very funny. Um, I don't think that the author like 
romanticizes them at all. Like they're real kids and they they make mistakes and do things. But they're also kids who are trying to invent diagnostics for Alzheimer's. Uh, one of them's trying to find a cure for Lyme disease. Um, another one's trying to like develop uh, liquid bandages. Like it's just amazing the stuff that they're working on. Um, and I just thought it was really charming and fascinating. Um, and I was, I don't know, like I didn't think I would really love a book about visiting back to high school, but I actually thought this was super charming. So um, that is The Class, A Life-Changing Teacher, His World-Changing Kids, and The Most Inventive Classroom in America by Heather Wontisario. That's so good and ties into one of my later picks, but uh, we will get to that. Um, So my first pick for our super fun back to school segment is Law Touched Our Hearts, A Generation Remembers Brown versus Board of Education, edited by Mildred Wigfall Robinson and Richard J. Bonney. It's published by Vanderbilt University Press. So Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, this is a Kansas case, stated that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal and that, quote, in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. So this is, you know, most people have heard of this case. It was a landmark Supreme Court case. This book is really interesting because it goes, it has 40 personal essays from across the country by people who attended public school in the wake of Brown and how it affected or didn't affect them. Um, The essayists are all lawyers. They are uh, black and white, born between 1936 and 1954. The Brown decision was in 1954. And something that I learned early on in the book, which I was very surprised by, was that a 2004 study by the Harvard Civil Rights Project uh, said that from 1964 to 1968, the percentage of Black students in the South attending majority white schools rose from 2% to 44%. So wow. again, that's so as of 1964, 10 years after Brown versus Board of Education, it was still 2%. Wow. So essentially, they're saying Brown versus Board of Education made this statement, but it didn't provide any actual sort of tools to enact it. Which is, of course, really sad. But the thing that made it happen, which they, they credit, is the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And obviously, right after that, uh, so, so it's 64 to 68, it goes from 2% to 44%. The Civil Rights Act is actually extremely effective. So the essay vary really widely. The first one is by this white lawyer who she saw this newsreel in the 1950s about Brown versus Board of Education that discussed evidence used in the case. So she's like, eight years old watching this newsreel. And it has this study that said black girls who were her age preferred white dolls to black dolls. And she traced the shock of this information and the absorption of the term racial self-hatred to her law career, handling anti-discrimination, pro-union cases, as well as writing on how organizational structures change to the disadvantage of all women and men of color. So she was like, like at the end of the essay, she's like, it all stemmed from that thing that I saw about Brown versus Board of Education, like my entire life and all my work, which I was like, that is stunning. This other, this guy, I'm sorry, this woman talks about her father's excitement about the decision. So like when it first came out, but when she asked about like what would happen, he was just really hesitant. It was kind of like, well, I don't, she was like, well, I, am I going to start going to an all white school? And he was like, um, well, I don't like probably maybe not. And then she just kept pushing. And then she said when later they had this second ruling come out about it that was trying to make it more forceful, which didn't really work. He just didn't say anything to her about it. So it's kind of this sort of uh, you, you hear about this thing and you kind of assume that all this stuff happened when really not that much happened, except for in some places they just like dug in and became really intransigent. And then other places kind of assumed that it was all fit. You know what I mean? Like it's just it was really enlightening. Um, I think it's a really unique kind of book. 
the essays vary pretty widely in terms of like some of them are very lawyerly because <laughs> again, they're all my lawyers and some are extremely touching. So um, again, that is Law Touched Our Hearts. A Generation Remembers Brown versus Board of Education by, well, edited by Mildred Wigfall Robinson and Richard J. Bonney. That sounds fascinating. What an interesting approach to try and like understand that moment in history. Like that's, oh, that's not so interesting. Great pick. So my uh, second pick is also a history book, although it, uh, it's coming at something totally different. Uh, it's called The Teacher Wars, A History of America's Most Embattled Profession by Dana Goldstein. Uh, and this is a book that came out in 2014, which I only say because um, I think books that are really like, reported like this, sometimes time can affect how you see them. And especially like books, books on like political issues that are like before and after uh, the Trump administration, I always feel like they feel a little dated. Um, so this one hasn't really felt dated to me so far because it's a history book, but it, it was something I was thinking about as I was reading it. So anyway, uh, the book is a 175-year uh, history of public education in the United, St- in the United States. Um, and it looks specifically at how teaching or her kind of approach for the book is to try and figure out how teaching became a controversial profession and how it became a profession that became that came under so much scrutiny. Um, because we hear so much about teachers and teacher performance and student performance and all of that. And also like the controversy of teachers unions. Uh, And so she's really trying to kind of look at the history to see if she can understand that better. So uh, the book is like a full history of teaching. So it starts with missionary teachers, uh, which is the thing by uh, founded by Catherine Beecher. Um, And it was so interesting to read that chapter because she was a person who advocated both for that um, boys and girls, men and women should have equal access to education and they should both be able to work in the classroom. Um, but or that women should be allowed to work in the classroom specifically because of their nurturing instinct, because they could be like both teachers and mothers. And so it was sort of like revolutionary in one way, but then also like very regressive in another way. Um and then chapters go on to look at black teachers after the Civil War. I look at the kind of creation and rise of teachers unions. Um, I look at the movement for teacher accountability um, and kind of in our new shift of data driven education and kind of other contemporary issues like that. So um, each chapter takes on a piece of the history of teaching, kind of going from, uh, you know, back when public schools kind of were a first thing into kind of what we think about education today. So um, I have found this really interesting. Like, I, um, I guess I I knew less about the history, almost nothing about the history of teaching, really, once I started to sit down and read. So um, it's been really fascinating. Her writing is very approachable. Um, I think she has really, I appreciate that the chapters are very focused and they each each have sort of a little story within them, um, which I think makes this kind of an easily digestible book rather than like a whole tome on the history of education. So um, I'm enjoying it very much. I think it's really, really interesting. So uh, that is The Teacher Wars, A History of America's Most Embattled Profession by Dana Gould. You know, Catherine Beecher. (laughs) I was thinking you probably had feelings about her. (laughs) Yeah, since um, uh, for any new listeners, I am very interested in 19th century women's rights in America. Catherine Beecher, I feel like is super complicated because she did some really great things, uh, including leading a women's movement to protest the Indian removal bill by President Andrew Jackson. Like, that's super cool, especially to do that in like 1830. That's like women were not really organizing at that point. So to do that is just like, wow, so impressive. But on the other hand, she was an anti-suffragist, <laughs> which I'm just yeah. like, and I'm like, how can you be so pro equal education and like pro the rights of others and also be like, women should not have the vote. I just, gosh, her whole family, they're just like a piece of work. 
I, of course, am very bitter about her brother, who was like really great in terms of some social justice things, but also kind of terrible in a lot of other ways. And then, of course, her sister wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is its whole own thing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think that for the teacher thing, we can give her a plus, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Gosh. Okay. <laughs> I just like, I saw like you were, you said Catherine Peacher and I was like, oh my gosh, so many feelings. As soon as I said it, I was like, I should maybe just pause and let Alice talk about Catherine Beecher for a while because I know she has feelings about her. <laughs> oh, speaking of feelings, I have so many about my last book. Yay! It is Spare Parts, Four Undocumented Teenagers, One Ugly Robot, and the Battle for the American Dream by Joshua Davis. I cried multiple times while reading this book. And it's like a really quick, easy read, but like, It's so good. Okay, so it's this classic underdog story of greatness. So think like Mighty Ducks, but with more stakes. (laughs) So in 2004, four Latino high school students arrived at the Marine Advanced Technology Education Robotics Competition. There is an acronym, but I'm not sure which way it's pronounced, so I'm not going to say it. So this is at the University of California, Santa Barbara. They were born in Mexico, but raised in Phoenix, Arizona, where they attended an underfunded public high school um, called Carl Hayden. So. These students are Luis, Lorenzo, Christian, and Oscar, and then it also discusses their two teachers who are awesome and so inspirational and just supportive of them throughout. So basically, it goes through each of their backstories, like how they arrived in the United States. One of them, um, Luis, had a green card, but the three others were undocumented. And so they were kind of living in this, you know, like, are we going to get sent back? And you're they were able to – I think that they ta- they go into the details of it. Basically, they could stay until – or at least if they didn't go back when, the, in, when they were 18 years old, then it would start being like a real problem, like meaning go back to Mexico where their parents brought them when they were children. It's so unfair. Okay, anyway. So they um, come from mostly like pretty impoverished backgrounds and they were at this high school that for some reason had this real like science focus. And so their teacher decided we're going to start a robotics program like we're going to enter this robotics contest for this underwater robot and they're like these kids are so innovative and just like smart and come up like they build this robot that's uh there was a quote that said these kids had shown up with a garishly painted plastic robot that was partially assembled from scrap parts they called it stinky because it smelled so bad when they (laughs) moved it together and like they're led by Oscar, who had um, – he was, like, the leader of his Razi group team, and he wanted to join the army, but he wasn't allowed to because he didn't have, like, documents, you know? Like, he, he didn't have his green card or it was, it was not a citizen. And it was just, like – it's so frustrating because these kids have so much to offer. And they so they go to this competition. It's so, like, triumphant. They beat MIT. Like, they enter – they're high school students, and they enter the college division, basically. And they, like, beat all of these engineering schools when they're living in the middle of a desert for this underwater robotics competition. <laughs> it's awesome. Anyway, so it is this, like, fun, triumphant story that they obviously made a movie of. But the author goes beyond that to focus on what happened to the boys afterwards, which just wasn't entirely great. Most of them could not go to college. Some of them... One of them actually was able to go all the way through, but he also suffered like all of the, he sent himself back to Mexico. He tried to apply to like for citizenship to get in because he had married this woman in America. They had a child and all this stuff. He had gotten his degree in engineering, 
from, I think it was the University of Arizona, and they denied him entry to the United States and said that he would, he would be able to apply again in 10 years, which is just like, good Lord. So uh, U.S. Uh, Illinois Senator Dick Durbin used him as an example of why we need the DREAM Act. But this sort of thing makes me so frustrated because you read the book and you love these kids so much and you see how much they have to offer. And then just the way that they're treated by the government is so frustrating. But again, like overall, you just, this book is just really like it makes you think and feel and all the good things that books do. <laughs> so and afterwards, the scholarship fund was set up for robotic students at Carl Hayden High School. And between 2005 and 2010, it spent $720,000 and sent 23 kids to college, which is awesome. So anyway, uh, read this book. It's so good. Spare Parts, Four Undocumented Teenagers, One Ugly Robot, and the Battle for the American Dream by Joshua Davis. That sounds amazing. I checked out the ebook on my phone while you were talking because it sounds so good. Uh, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> All right. Um, so now we will uh, we will wrap things up as we usually do by talking about the books that we are reading or listening to. In my case, right now. Um, so I am actually finally getting around to reading *Burnout: The Secret to Unblocking the Stress Cycle* by Emily Nagoski and Amelia Nagoski. Um, and this is a book that came out earlier this year, and it's all about the stress cycle, specifically uh, stress and burnout in women. So they take a veer. They're um, some of the stuff they talk about can apply to both men and women, but they're really looking at it from a female perspective um, and those kind of specific things in the world that contribute to women's burnout and stress, uh, things like the patriarchy uh, and the bikini industrial complex, which is basically just the idea that like you should be skinny and everything like that all the time. So they're they're coming at it from that particular angle. Uh, and it is fascinating. Um, I bought this book back in like May, I think. And I read the very first chapter at the time, which is about specifically about the stress response cycle and ways that you can uh, techniques that you can use to uh, help your body go through the stress response cycle so that it doesn't build up and cause you problems. Um, and I read that chapter and then I just stopped reading it for whatever reason. Um, so I heard this twin, their twin sisters, I heard them on a podcast and they were very funny on the podcast. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to do the audiobook and I'm going to finish this. So I've been listening to this in my car and it is great. Like it just has given me so many ideas and ways to think about stress and our bodies and being people in bodies in the world. Um, it's just, it's really, really, really good. So I'm going to finish it soon. I've got like a half chapter left, I think at this point. So um, that is burnout. The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle by Emily and Amelia Nagoski. That's awesome. I love when I find out about new books from their authors being on podcasts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just feels like a good introduction to their ideas. What I'm reading right now is another audiobook, which this one's like 20 hours, which feels very long, but I'm excited because it is Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood by Karina Longworth, the host of the podcast You Must Remember This, which is so good. I am 100% positive I've listened to her talk for way, way more than 20 hours already. So should not be a problem. Yeah, I love her. Is that book – when did that come out? Like last year? Yeah, uh, last year, 2018. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. I love her. I listened to so many episodes of You Must Remember This for a while. Like just that was all I was listening to. It's really good. I'm on the Monsters one right now, like about Boris Karloff and Bella Lugosi. Cool. Yes, it's really good. Um, okay, so with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. 
And if you feel so inclined, please take a minute to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Uh, This helps people find us more easily. And while you are there, you can subscribe so that you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. And so with that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. 